Let me start. I wasn't even recording, and I. This is my brain. This is how my brain has been. I know. I feel like I can't even think in straight sentences right now. I know. I, Everybody just needs to cut themselves some slack. Like we're 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 up. We're talking. We're cheerful. Yeah, that's, yes. that's good. Yeah. Yes. We're we're putting our our best foot forward. So I'm gonna go again. Jiminy <laughs> Christmas, Doc. You put a time machine in this machine. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about antiquity, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Elijah Fleming. Today, we're going to be talking about Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Disney's 2001 animated sci-fi action adventure directed by Gary Trisdell and Kirk Wise. And I'm very excited to announce we are also joined by a guest for the second episode in a row, the wonderful Dr. Clara Bozak-Schroeder from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Clara we're really excited to have you on board because you were one of the first responses we got back when I sent out my initial query, and I was so excited. I am a huge podcast fan, and so this is actually this is like literally a dream. Excellent! Yay! <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, wait till you're. Yeah, I mean, don't don't uh don't thank us yet. <laughs> so we'll start. I want to start with with Clara first, but we kind of always like kick off by just querying. Uh, both like what your exposure to this movie has been, like when did you first see it? What was it like revisiting it? And in general, like, do you dig this movie? This movie has been on my list, my various lists for many years now, because uh, the city of Atlantis sort of has popped up in my own, in my own research from time to time, but I'd never seen it until yesterday. Uh, oh, and yes. I, I watched it in a very particular frame of mind because of, of the week that we're having. Um, yes. And I would say that I, um, the, the desire to love this movie all warred with the desire to hate it pretty, mm-hmm. pretty fiercely. And I'm, I'm not sure that I've, I've resolved that tension within myself. So I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to give you a wishy-washy answer, but I, I really, I, I did dig the experience of watching it, knowing that I would get to talk about it. Oh, excellent. That's the best answer yet. We, we've been finding that too. A lot, like last couple of movies, Eli and I have been like, awesome. yeah, like dig with yeah. an asterisk or like maybe, but I recognize these certain things about the movie that I don't dig. Yeah. Eli, what about you? <laughs> yeah, I I saw this in theaters. I remember like going with my parents as a younger person um, and really, really uncritically enjoying this movie. I thought it was really fun. Uh, I think I'm a sucker for expedition movies or expedition stories like I love Lewis and Clark uh, in school I have an unhealthy obsession with uh, the quest for the Northwest Passage I love all of those crazy Arctic expeditions so this was like right up my alley and I do think that watching it this week I am embarrassed at how much I dig this movie because I think there are definitely parts of it that make me wince or I kind of like squirm a little bit where I'm like, ah, it's not great. But I, I, I do, I dig this movie. (laughs) I kind of had, I think the reverse of Eli's experience because I'm trying to remember back, but I would have been about 11 or 12, I think when this came out. And I think for whatever reason I was sort of cooling because this is, we're getting just sort of, we had, I was always a big, and still am in many ways, like a sort of endorser of a lot of the like dis- early Disney Renaissance ones of the early and mid 90s. And this is like a shift in that. And so I, from the get go, never really liked this movie. 
and I continue not to like it. And I've basically <laughs> been talking myself into not liking it for like the last two decades. And I, there's things about it as, as anyone who's listened to any episode of this podcast will, will come to know that I get hung up on plot points and plot contrivances very easily that can break a movie for me. And this movie has perhaps the ones that bug me most. And then as I sort of got older and like rewatching it now, especially having like gone through graduate school and been really particularly right now in the field, we're having a lot of reconciliation about our own legacy as, as classicist and archeology span and history and things like that. I'm like, there's things in this movie that I really don't like, but we can, we're going to get into them in, in just a second. So I, the first kind of point I just have on my talking list is just, and Claire, you mentioned Atlantis kind of cropping up in your research leave, just like the status of Atlantis in our like, 20th late 20th early 21st century like mythos or like our you know like what is yeah atlantis yeah i was trying to think about the like other important touchstones um and it's i know that i know there was a tv series for a while mm-hmm. but i feel like it, it it's rarely featured in depth the way that it is here and it's actually in the early modern period that you, you get like several works that are sort of um take Atlantis as their like point of departure for thinking about utopia. So I, a question that I, I sort of have, even though the movie is framed uh, very explicitly with a quote from Plato is, is how much, how much Atlantis is not, you know, how much Atlantis is important to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, given that, especially the, I, I know that the, the creators of it were drawing a lot on um 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, yeah, um, which is itself probably also in dialogue with the Atlantis myth, but it seems like Atlantis was being mediated very heavily by other myths and archetypes here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it, that makes it, I think, hard for me to, to assess. Um, yeah, to assess. This this movie, yeah, it's kind of like a couple of things because, like you said, it's very Jules Verne, and the, even the, the the production notes mm-hmm. and all the the creators yeah. have like explicitly said they kind of wanted to do like a twenty thousand leagues journey to the center of the earth kind of thing. Uh, so that so it which is I think why it's like set when it's set. It's kind of the you know it's set in nineteen fourteen something like that. It's kind of that, and it also it rubs mm-hmm. shoulders. I know, and it, yeah, it has this whole. It's kind of bumps into my next talking point, which is just like about the history and archaeology and linguistics and colonialism more broadly but like it rubs shoulders with a kind of early sci-fi action adventure sort of novels and then also like my sort of recently reading this 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 movie really rubs shoulders with almost like ancient aliens kind of stuff like it reminds me a lot of stargate it's like almost the same premise as that as that movie or maybe stargate's like this i was just gonna say it, it did make me want to construct a genealogy of of what is influencing what here mm. um uh, and mm-hmm. in particular, I thought it was, you know, and we'll get to the, the Pocahontas problem yeah. of, of this movie, but, you know, it's that written down it comes too. six years after <laughs> Pocahontas, which feels like too soon. Like, mm-hmm. Disney, come on. Like, yeah. didn't, didn't you realize this was a mistake? But it also comes um, about, what, like seven, eight years before Avatar. I was about to uh, say that's that the next Pocahontas iteration mm-hmm. is, is yep. the Avatar movie, which even then everyone was like, well, I mean, I guess box office loved it, but like, yeah, everyone was like, this is a bit tired at best. <laughs> right. But I feel like, so we could, you know, we could construct that genealogy, but also look at, you know, how this, how this movie is, is building on or, or coming to influence other sort of undersea adventure, mm-hmm. um, lost civilization, lost quote, air quote, civilization yeah. uh, type 
type ancient aliens. Yeah, I almost wish that they like hadn't called it Atlantis. Like they could have called it any sort of uh, invented fantasy lost civilization, and I think it would have had a very similar story arc. But it's like the Atlantis part is that pop culture ancient aliens like uh, the we don't know the whole mm-hmm. story sort of thing um, that I think actually gets people maybe into it at first and that if they had just sort of had this very Jules Vernian storyline that it wouldn't have had the same pop. I did like that I mean it, so you know the 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 colonial fantasy of this movie cannot be understated. Yeah. But I think there are some interesting like sort of unintended consequences of it. For example, the Atlanteans are brown skinned. Mm-hmm. And this is one of several things that I think is supposed to cue, um, especially, uh, you know, white American watchers to think about, you know, indigenous peoples of, of North America. Um, but um, if we're imagining that this is, a, if we take seriously, this is Atlantis, um, it, it's somewhere over, you know, fairly close to Europe. Right. Um, so it's kind of it's an inter- it's interestingly located. Like it's not just an it's not Avatar that, that could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's not um, Pocahontas in what is literally, you know, yeah. uh, Virginia or whatever. It is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's somehow in between those things. And I actually, you know, given these debates in classics um, about the way that um, ancient Greece and Rome are often portrayed as white there's something potentially subversive if you read really hard against the grain <laughs> yeah. about, about having these um, brown-skinned Atlanteans, but it's, it's a big... Yeah, because the, the whole, like, plot is framed in this very imperialistic sort of colonial expedition, very, like, like Heinrich Schliemann-esque, where it's, like, there's, a, there's, like, sort of crackpot academic Michael J. Fox and a sort of benevolent <laughs> billionaire discovers him or finds it or literally owes his grandfather like a favor or something. So he funds this private expedition with like his own private army, presumably. Uh, we can get about like why they, I have like all sorts of the, the little things that bug me. I'm like, why is this like a pseudo military expedition? But anyways, <laughs> the, yeah. And then it's like, there's like that it's wrapped up in that sort of like colonial, like, like allure of like going to a strange and new place and meeting people who are usually like darker skinned and then they find they some sort of like they have some sort of secret technology there's it's it's so many different things that that is like wrapped up in and i'm, I'm already like i'm trailing off with my where my like brain is going with this because it's like you really it, like you could potentially like i think people have argued that this movie is kind of anti-colonial or anti-capitalist because they at the end they decide to not go with with Rourke the villain and and exploit these people and steal their life source and like condemn them but I am unconvinced by that because the whole thing like I think Disney does this thing where it's like when there's a villain who's some kind of like banker or rich person or evil tycoon fat cat kind of type it's always framed against like there's like a good benevolent billionaire like there's a benevolent billionaire and that there's like greedy capitalists and there's good capitalists like it's not it, this movie doesn't in any way say like maybe this whole enterprise is like flawed sort of root to you know stock and root it's just like there's bad individuals within the framework that like make make like you know make life miserable but it's not like nobody ever questions like the the the, the ex- wanting to go on the expedition sort of at all if that makes sense or i just went on like a weird rant <laughs> 
Yeah, so this is why I, I really struggled with this movie because it is, I mean, it is a colonial fa- fantasy, but it is also more honest about being that mm-hmm. than a lot of other movies. And so the fact that you have, um, you have especially the villain at the end say that he is an adventurer capitalist yeah. who's providing yeah. a necessary service to the archaeological community <laughs> yeah. is so much more honest and upfront than Indiana Jones or, or any of the other mm-hmm. um, sort of sort of movies in this genre. And and I found that I found that quite refreshing. However, the structure of the film, as you were pointing out, Collins is in no way really um, uh, it, it does not take responsibility mm-hmm. uh, for this colonial expedition. And in fact, the the characters that do fight back against the the sort of leader of the expedition are rewarded handsomely in the end, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and actually, it, 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 if anything, I feel like at the end you're supposed to think that. The whole thing was necessary because, you know, the Atlanteans otherwise would have died out if if our white savior Milo mm-hmm. had come in to read them their own. This is language. exactly this, what I was gonna say. Yes. This is my uh, biggest sticking point with the movie is <laughs> it's this this bonkers notion that yeah. it plays with. Yeah. No, I I totally agree that I appreciate the sort of questioning nature that this has for this sort of fantasy of um, imperial exploration. And I think really forces us to hopefully like look at our own Lewis and Clark, which I, you know, loved in school and sort of have to have, you know, far more serious uh, conversations about uh, manifest destiny and this sort of idea that, you know, exploring is a, um, a service it belongs in a museum it belongs in a museum and that's sort of um at the end he says like if you gave back all of the things that you stole from the museum you would have an empty building it's like yes these are things that we agree that we say absolutely we would have empty buildings and maybe that's okay um but that's like still a huge discussion but it is the white savior coming in to read them their own language that absolutely gets me I kept coming back and thinking, like, comparing this movie and the way, like, Atlantean civilization is portrayed versus, like, I was thinking particularly of, like, Wakanda and, like, the Marvel and, like, Black Panther and that stuff. Whereas, like, that's, like, and and in some ways they're very similar because they're both, like, secret, hidden, technologically super advanced sort of mystery civilizations. But they're also night and day because Wakanda is fine, independent of, they're actually more than fine, independent of the rest of the world. And like, they're better for having not. And then at the end, it's like of Black Panther, they, they kind of say like, it's, we have to get back into the world and help other people um, who haven't had this kind of like fortunate that, you know, the privilege basically that, that we've had in Wakanda, but as Atlantis there, my biggest plot point thing that drives me nuts about this movie is there's like two things going on. So they're, they're both Kida and, and Leonard Nimoy, her dad are, uh, they are thousands of years old. They were there for like the, they saw Atlantis fall like eight or 9,000 years ago, however it was simultaneously. They say that their own culture is just atrophying on its own accord. Like everybody's afraid, but like when there's two people living who would presumably know like how to read their own language, or like operate their machines and stuff. And so Milo needs to come back and explain to Kida how to read her own language. But then it also, it does like, it does that. It plays into certain tropes for like when my, when Kida like says her full name to Milo, he like completely butchers it. 
which is like this guy's supposed to be the expert in in Atlantean language. Like you, he would he wouldn't like that is a trope from another movie where like somebody you know John Smith meets Pocahontas and like can't say her name mm-hmm. or something like that. It's just so incongruous, and it's like this movie's like two movies like Venn diagramming over each other, but that like pull apart in that way. I also think that there were some in addition to those inconsistencies you point out. There are also some lost, like missed opportunities. Like if you're going to set up the movie this way, which also has a like an interesting, you know, it's sort of a, a, a very schematic but racially diverse uh, mm-hmm. supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it like one of the one of the other people on the expedition is is um, Audrey, who's uh, a Latina mechanic, mm-hmm. and like why isn't she the one that can start up the the fish ship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Mil- Milo is, is simultaneously a philologist, a master like navigator, and um, a better mechanic than the the woman who was raised to be a mechanic and has yeah, been the whole it, boiler right the the boiler room. But like that was an opportunity. Like what? How would we have felt if this was actually ended up being a movie about Tita and Audrey like teaming up? to save the Atlanteans and also hooking up. I, I That's part of, oh, yeah. part of my fantasy. I, I'm sure there's like, I, I would bet you there's like fanfic and headcanon out there. That is exactly that. If I know anything about the fan community in in, the, in this current year. Yeah, I think, I, I do feel like it's, this ultimately is very, uh, it's an indictment in particular of the academic who, mm-hmm. who embodied by Milo, who is, you know, horrified by the system um, the, this, you know, this uh, colonial system he's joined, but is completely surprised by it, <laughs> and um, it, you know, takes no responsibility for for his part in perpetuating it. Uh, his sort of uncritical, apolitical stance to <laughs> being an academic is 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 really, um, it's, it's you know, this is where we live. Telling, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about the art since I know that that's another big, mm. uh, another uh, a, a divisive point about this movie. Some people love it and others hate it. I think I, when I first saw it as a small child, I was like, cool. I sort of didn't see, I guess, a whole lot wrong with it. But I, I guess I go back and forth because I feel like they were trying to sort of be maybe sensitive to very complex, wonderful um, ancient cultures that do very interesting things with like the the full masks and the kind of weird like glyphic um, rock art, which I think is very cool and interesting, but also maybe just a little watered down in this and could have been could have been more cool. I mean, they created a whole language for the movie. I sort of, I wanted like a little bit more, I guess. I, 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 yeah, I feel like in like a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy, when they're creating sort of whole cultures, there's like the lazy avenue, which is like just take two pre-existing cultures or, or a pre-existing culture and just like riff on that or something like that in like kind of a derivative way. And then there's like, there's other that sort of like think, I think a little more deeper about like why things might look or take the shape or like given like the resources and the whatever sort of cultural historical influences there might be. I'm trying to think of like a good example. Um, this is probably a niche, but I was thinking like if you ever, if there's a, the game Horizon Zero Dawn, which is, 
I can't even begin to explain it, but there's like a, there's like an art style in this game of like this civilization. It's kind of like a post, it's robot dinosaurs. Like it's far in the future, but it's also okay. like kind of like stone age civilization Perfect. because they've lived like after the apocalypse. So there's like robot dinosaurs, uh, but they have like, it's sort of like, there's like this one city that has this, I think really compelling art style. That's kind of more the the former I was talking about. And this, I think the notes say that like the buildings and the art, was very much, I think, influenced by, like, Mayan, but also Southeast Asian. Like, it's kind of Angkor Wat and also Chichen Itza. There's definitely, like, a sort of Easter Island kind of, was it Rapa Nui? Like, the big idol mm-hmm. kind of heads and things like that. And I'm not sure where I, I fall, because it's sort of, it, like, they, it, it sort of seems like a lot of creativity. When I think one of the, the I'm, I'm going all over the place, as is my want, but, like, the, Two points of praise I feel like that you recurringly see with this movie are one, the supporting cast, which I think we can get back to, and two, the art style. And just like I think there's a lot of like technical and animation advances that happened in this movie. Like there's like shots where they can pull out and have these big swooping panoramas that are like from a technical standpoint, very, very impressive. The Atlantean culture, I don't know where I fall on it. It's it's it feels a little bit like like we kind of have been saying it feels like very much indebted to like this sort of colonial like age of dis- like exploration in say like South America or Africa or, or Southeast Asia like it's indebted to that in a way that feels maybe unoriginal but I'm not quite sure where I fall I'm still making up my mind yeah I think I'm with Eli that I just wanted a lot more world building here just because partly that's like that's what I that's what I crave mm-hmm. um, and also I, there were a, several. In addition to some sort of uh, mixing of, of um, iconography that you pointed out, Colin, there are some specific references to um, uh, indigenous people in, in North America. So um, Cookie, the sort of prospector figure, fascinating, mm-hmm. fascinating um, supporting character, says at one point when they, the, the Atlanteans like, gang up on them and he says, I, you know, I've seen this back in the Dakota. They can smell mm-hmm. fear just by looking at you. Which yeah. Is like, such a complicated utterance because it's it's really it's it's I think we're supposed to be critical of it like we're you know this is this is a you know a racist comment mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. they can like just this weird stereotype of like magical sensing powers mm-hmm. um, but it also just it it so clearly shows the connection between the experience of you know genocide in the United of like this mass genocide in the United States and how this is being then applied in, in an exploration quote-unquote context, right? So, so it's like a nice, it's another nice little link there. Or, but, but then there are things that I, I couldn't really make sense of, like the fact that Sweet, the, the, the um, black doctor, mm-hmm. like he, he says that his, you know, that one of his parents is an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are we supposed to make of that, you know, in terms of his, in terms of like reading the, the, the racial politics of the, of the movie. Um, I will say uh, just on the animation, I think this is the thing I like the best about it. And the reason that I, I think I, I stayed, I didn't, I didn't dismiss it out of hand. I thought it was so beautiful. And I know that the, the budget, the animating budget was cut tremendously at a fairly late stage. And I wish that we'd been able to see the sort of the full, the full vision. Um, but the style, the sort of sketchy comic booky 2D style of the characters, um, especially the way their faces were animated, they sort of ripple. It sounds weird, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of mobility in their faces mm-hmm. that I don't associate with Disney. 
um, I thought was was gorgeous. Also, um, Helga is possibly the sexiest cartoon Absolutely. since Jessica Rabbit. Like, she, yeah. knocked, she knocked my socks off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> totally yeah. So, so that I'm Santa Claus. I came down the chimney or whatever. Like, yeah. whatever her opening line is. She like, has like, that big, um, like, fur stool. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, she kicks good. ass. Um, Absolutely. But, <laughs> They, uh, it's funny, the, the, the art, I'm, I'm glad actually, Claire, you brought that up because the, one of the, like the, the art style of this film just generally is like very unique, I think among Disney, particularly like we, Elon and I just were talking about Hercules, which has like, a, it's like night and day, the way those movies are animated. Mm-hmm. Although, um, um, one of the Hercules illustrators worked on mm-hmm. Atlantis. So they were, yeah. they were, they saw them as connected or they oh, interesting that. That yeah interesting yeah but the the art style in particular i think i don't know i forget he either worked in consultation or it was based on but it was based on mike mignola who's the uh hellboy uh comics creator and it, i think it, it really shows if you look at like old hellboy they had the, there's like a not like jaggedness there's like kind of an edge to it and like the way their hands look mm-hmm. they have like in like the kind of the sharp angles um a lot of the characters are yeah uh, I think it's it's got a really distinctive visual style. For sure. And again, yeah, this movie in, I mean, this this I think ties into everything we're talking about, but this movie also, compared to other Disney movies, I think is really directed at like a young, and I assume, and I'm, I'm oh, I don't, I'm almost 90% sure, young male viewership, which is funny because that was me when it came out, but I didn't like it at all. But it's like the, the t-shirts for the production team said less songs, more explosions or something like that. Like it was designed to be... <laughs> a more action adventure PG-13. And this movie has, Eli and I were just talking, Claire, before you came on, the body count of this movie is wild when you think about it. Yeah, because they're all the, all the army guys that die up front, right? Mm-hmm. Astoundingly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and is, the ship, is there a ship called the Ulysses? Is that yes, right? It, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is a, kind of a nice, um, a nice, another illusion. Uh, I also, I read that apparently they wanted there to be a much higher body count and were told to, um, to, to, to take it back a notch. So there were supposed to be more explosions, more monsters, more guns, a lot more guns. And there, there are more guns in this than I'm, than I was, I was expecting. So. Yeah. There, I think in the, what I, I was reading about, like in the production, in the early drafts, there was a lot more of, it's funny because we kind of, we talk about, we want more of Atlantis proper, but in the original draft, there was more of the like journey it was more like a the Jules Verne thing where they were like traveling underground and navigating past like different monsters and obstacles and a lot of that got hacked out so they could basically because they they get to Atlantis relatively quickly I want to say yeah um, it doesn't take that long it doesn't feel like it drags I guess mm-hmm. yeah oh no because then going hand in hand with sort of like the visual design of I think Atlantean cultures like like we we said they invented a whole language they got Mark um Ockren's who's famous for, he invented Klingon, and I think of maybe the Avatar language. And from what I learned, that Atlantean language, it's based, sort of the word stock comes from Proto-Indo-European, but it also has, like Mark Ockrand, I think, does Native American linguistics. So there's a lot of Native American, I think, grammar and also Sumerian grammar. And the idea of, like, this idea of, like, an Ur language, uh, I thought that that might be something we can talk about, because that has definitely come up in our our field. (laughs) Yeah, that yeah, I I uh, there were some, you know, some weird moments with uh, with a, sort of outdated notions of, of of how languages work or, or just wrong things like I mean I don't, I like both don't want to be pedantic and, and maybe that's the point of uh, part of the point <laughs> of the podcast but but like at the very beginning when Milo is explaining that it, the manuscript isn't in Ireland it's in Iceland and just mm-hmm. the way that he, 
the way that he shows that is like um, it, 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 it demonstrates a lot of ignorance of the way language works. My, my uh, partner yeah. that I was watching with, she's a linguist. She does French linguist. And when that happens, she just starts screaming. She goes, it's a code, not a language or whatever. Uh, but maybe this is a, like, this is one of these things that it's like, well, maybe, you know, it's 1914. So maybe this is actually a sort of a weirdly historically accurate. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the sort of mistake I, or error I just alluded to, but like the idea of an or language, I'm sure was pretty in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right that it's perpetuating this. Um, and that like, viewers are not going to be able to, to tell the difference. Yeah. There's I, a whole, so go for it. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, I think on the subject of, of Atlantean culture, I thought, you know, they went in a, so we don't get a lot of, we don't get a lot of Atlantean culture. We have to fill in a lot of gaps, but there are numerous allusions to Native Americans, mm-hmm. which we've mentioned, and also including the fact that Kita is voiced by a, a free woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cree Summers. People. Right. And so, so that's sort of, I think that's what we're supposed to be filling in with. Mm -hmm. And that really is quite different. I think they could have gone in a different direction actually by using Plato, Mm -hmm. um, uh, who describes in in just in detail, the sort of the type of, the type of culture um, that, that exists in like the stratification and the the sorts of monuments that, that are being built and none of which is incompatible with um, Native American or First Nations cultures but it's not part of the stereotype. Mm-hmm. However, there is this eruption, I think, um, of a more platonic idea of Atlantis in that moment where they arrive and the Atlanteans start speaking all of their languages. Um, so they're, they're polyglots. And I, I feel like that's something Plato been like, oh yeah, that, that, makes, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That actually shows up in Greek utopian narratives, this idea that um, people who live in the best places, they, you know, they, they can speak multiple languages or they're, uh, Diodor Sickles talks about people on the island of the sun who have uh, forked tongues and this, this allows them to speak more languages. So um, awesome. Better, right? That's wild. Yeah, I sort of, though, I almost wish that there had been that more tension between like people who do not speak the same language and sort of having to maybe go through the one or two people in their groups that can communicate and how like much tension that can build and how like things can be misinterpreted and uh, mistakes can be made and like how you negotiate with a new culture that you're not familiar with. I think I've always wanted to see that in a story um, because I think it's, it's a little bit more realistic, right. About, you know, people whose cultures have come together in the past of like, how do we talk? How do we communicate? How do we, um, you know, tell each other what we want to say. So I, I've always wanted to see that in a, in a movie. And I kind of wish there'd been a little bit more of that. Yeah. I think it would have better just in, from like a story craft standpoint, it would have justified Milo's sort of existence a little bit more. And like, and like my sort of take is either they either, they did the, they did the thing where they explained it both simultaneously, not enough and too much where like, had they not said anything we probably many we might not have ever questioned because there's plenty of movies where people who have no business speaking each other's language yes. will just everybody speaks English in, in fantasy world. But then the explanation they give is is like drives me up walls uh, that they 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 can sort of reverse engine because they speak this like utopian origin language. They therefore can understand English and French and Spanish and whatever and Latin. I think chop crops up very briefly. Mm-hmm. 
which to me just even as like I think a young like a as like a preteen, I was like, that's not that can't that does that can't be how it works. <laughs> uh, what else do I? You mentioned the supporting cast. Maybe yes. we can talk about them. Yes, that is actually exactly where I was going to go. I think, yeah, the so one of the, I think, side effects or benefits even of this movie not being a musical where there's, you know, th- th- it frees up more space for thing having like an ensemble cast like the way it does. And I think like most people, when they remember this movie fondly, they primarily are thinking about the supporting cast like Audrey and it was Audrey Sweets, Cookie, Miss Packard, and who am I forgetting? Moliere. Moliere. Oh, Moliere. I don't know what to. I don't know what to make of Moliere. <laughs> oh, he's my he's my favorite. One hundred percent. Always been my favorite. <laughs> so weird. You know, he's also a, he's also quite uh, lecherous. Let's say. Yeah. Um, Putting it nicely. <laughs> right. So you know, I, I feel like that actually that wasn't necessary. Like they clearly they just wanted to have a. Um, another male to kind of ogle Peta, but I, I don't feel like that was really necessary. To... No, he was because like... he's French. Maybe is that the idea? <laughs> yeah, he's French. So we got you know the French, the Italian, the the you know Northern European prospect, old, older prospector, right? Mm-hmm. The Latina, the black man who's also indigenous. Yeah, it, 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 I, it was, I was I was surprised. I was like, huh, you know, you could have had you know I would have expected to see an Irish. Person, yeah. I would have, I would have expected more varieties of white people, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I actually thought that the, the the little that we get of their backstories is fascinating, and and the way that, in a way, I almost wanted them to to not um, to not join the cause at the end and just mm-hmm. double down and be like, we are marginalized within this society, we need to get paid. Screw you! Because I, you know, I, I feel like that that would have been been quite honest. Of course, they they, they get to be both ethical and rich at the end, which is very yeah. nice. Um, yeah. So what? So uh, you said you you like Moliere. I do. You like? Do you have do you have other favorites among the I, supporting cast? I love Vinny. I love the the demolitions expert. He's so like like soft and tender on the inside and explodey on the outside and something about that just kind of touches my heart. I love that. He, he, he represents a particular approach to archaeology. Like, Eli, when you go on your, your digs, you def- you're just like, you're dynamiting stuff left and right and you get in like a big drill. I do think it's telling that like my favorite characters are the, the sort of more straight up dirt archaeology, maybe we could call them. So Moliere mm-hmm. is like, I want to dig. You said there would be digging. I want to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Vinny's actually, you know, like blowing up stuff to get places and do stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like that. I I mean, it's obviously a part of archaeological history that we used to do terrible things with dynamite. And it's something we really <laughs> had to reckon with. But yeah, I, I think they're great, wonderful funky little characters they make me happy <laughs> i think something claire just said that reminded me it would have been almost it would have been i think more satisfying just as a viewership because like this movie is very sort of male wish fulfillment and that the fact that claire was saying like milo basically gets to do everything and it's sort of but like it really felt it felt like like there should have been a little bit more that each character like had some sort of like unique thing that they alone were capable and, and skilled and had the expertise to, to do and also not just the the sort of supporting expedition, but Kida especially, because mm-hmm. Kida is, as a character, I think my least favorite aspect of the movie, because like, she's a convergence of a lot of the plot problems I have, but then also the problems, I think, with the way this film sort of 
like almost gets into an interesting treatment of basically a non-male or non-white character and then just kind of doubles back down on Milo because she's kind of written out of the last she 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 becomes a she literally becomes a sort of art piece for the like colonial expedition to sort of exploit yeah I I think she was also the least interesting to look at just the way she was animated was like Mm -hmm. not there was something about her that seemed somewhat sort of moved out the other characters they end up looking they're grotesque At moments, it just depends on the way that, they're, like, the way they're moving, um, and even the even the, the the ones that are like, I think supposed to be beautiful have moments where their features are rent. And I mm. felt like Kita was just was a little bit more static. I yeah, I've never uh, like I think pulled that apart, but I think you're exactly right. That makes so much sense because like even Helga, who's like sort of dripping with sex, is sort of like has this like furrowed brow and it's, like this angry face and yeah and Kita's just kind of blank almost yeah she 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 combines I think like like several problematic tropes of like female characters in movies where she sort of is like simultaneously like naive but also very wide like like Milo kind of has to explain stuff to her which is absurd because if anyone would know it should be her she not only is sort of Atlantean but then remember like live through all this stuff She's eight thousand years old. I don't know what to what to make about that. It's like massive age gap. <laughs> I know, but she's so, just a girl. She's just a girl, so it yeah, doesn't matter. Um, yeah. And he's a philologist, so <laughs> you know. It's funny though. It made me really want to revisit Avatar, which is a movie that I have a lot of a lot of love feelings for, in addition to, to the hate feelings. But mm-hmm. but there, the dynamic I think is actually a lot healthier, where um, the Navi princess whose name I'm forgetting is, oh, is yeah. yeah is the teacher like is the educator of yeah. the of the white male love interest yeah and Sam Worthington like he he yeah he's like a child if it were like when he first comes up he has to be like he's so and I think the, that movie I, yeah like that movie is is again like another Pocahontas dances with wolves kind of right, white savior is, yeah. complex well, and, that, and that's that, uh, you know and that's a problem too that the sort of you have the like wise you know essentially crypto Native American culture, right? Yeah. At the, like that is that is itself a problem, but it was a little less absurd than what we saw here um, mm-hmm. with, with Milo, you know, explaining things mm-hmm. to this ancient woman. <laughs> it just makes me have so many questions about like the various lifespans of different Atlanteans. So it's like, is everybody that like her father is obviously older than she is, but like how old is he? And there are children in the Atlantean universe. And like, how old are they? <laughs> like, how how many children do you have a year if you all live for like thousands of years? This is the kind of like the kind of thing that like I said was driving me because like I think a lot of my problems really revolve. They come back down to the the crystal, the magic crystal, which I think is just a crappy trope sort of in general but like i have so i have like this list of like plot contrivances and gripes of of that and like 90 percent of them revolve around the crystal so like there's this vague sense in the movie that atlantis was this like global technological superpower and then they did something like they were conquering or building weapons or something that leonard nimoy's character was he kind of he kind of mentions i think at one point that like we were making super weapons and that's what led to the cataclysm that destroyed our society. And then what I think we're supposed to take away is that consequently Leonard Nimoy like shut it all down and decided to go into like an isolationist 
state and then then the everybody sort of collectively forgot how to like turn i mean by the way also like the thing that like milo's explanation for how to how to drive the fish ship is like you literally just have to like put your hand on it and turn it clockwise and like they had they couldn't have figured that out in eight thousand years the whole thing like it it, it, and it really is just like the crystal is so hand wavy explained over like what it is and how it works that for me like the movie just even from like a plot standpoint like falls apart because like like Eli said, is Arkita and and her dad the only two super old Atlanteans, or are they all that old? Have they all just the same exact people have been living down here, frozen or something for like thousands of years? Oh, like I was just gonna say, if Milo stays, is he also gonna live for thousands of years? Or is he just gonna be like a drop in the pond? Like like he's gonna die in a hundred years, and Kita's gonna be like, all right, I guess I just keep living now. It's like. <laughs> It's like Arwen I mean, and Aragorn or something. I, I, I do want better for her, so I sort of hope that's the case. But we're told at one point that the crystal like increases longevity, so I'm afraid he's probably gonna uh, gonna stick around, gonna stick around for a while. Darn. Yeah, I, I was curious. You know, this is another. Uh, I had heard that there was some sort of you know ecological kind of subtext to this movie, and that was another thing that made me curious about it. And the fact that there, you know, um, the commander uh, is. And Helga are are they're motivated to go? They they want the crystal because it's a power source, and they want to sell it to the highest bidder. Subtext in World War One. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, and yeah. so that's the so sort of ups the stakes, right, for this. And it makes me curious. That's that's obviously the plot of Avatar too, um, where you have like a military ex-military expedition to go and get the unobtainium. Um, oh my gosh. Which is which is a power source. At least it didn't have a dumb name like that here. Yeah. <laughs> But I, it makes me curious, like, is this, um, like, how, is this the first iteration of that trope? Like, you know, where, where does this, where can we trace this back to? And also in terms of plot points, like, presumably Prescott, the old Billy, the old billionaire, he hires the commander and Helga, right? Yeah. And assembles this expedition. So, like, isn't, it, it made me very confused. Is he in on it? Does he, does he want the crystal too? Or, it, because at the end, he seems to be supporting the, the, the other characters in their in their mutiny. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that was that was not filled in. There isn't a moment where the commander kind of goes off the rails and decides to, you know, uh, disobey his his mm-hmm. billionaire patron. I think I'm not not to defend this movie, but I'm gonna make as a, in a devil's advocate. I'm gonna I'm gonna take oh, on my devil's God. advocate, but like I think. I think the idea is they just expected there wouldn't be anyone down here, so it would have been a non-issue. It would have they would have just come down and like found the crystal, taken it back, you know. And I don't know. Actually, I don't know if Prescott. What do you feel? I don't know if yeah, but you're right though. I don't know if Prescott was in on the weapon sale aspect of the thing. There are other indications too that like so the grand, Milo's grandfather, right? He um, whom we see in a photograph is wearing a like military medals and a pit helmet, mm-hmm. which Milo literally takes and puts on his own head. Yeah. Um, you we know, there are, Sarah Bond just had the, that article about pith helmets. I feel yeah, like, exactly. That, that that was a big that was a big thing on classic Twitter. The vintage, the whole like vintage colonial mm-hmm. yeah. aesthetic. So again, it's just like these curious moments that are like so upfront. It almost feels kind of refreshing, mm-hmm. but but also in a way that is it's clear that the creators are in, are not at all truly critical because you know they make allusions to um, like when Vinny 
demolishes the first column, you know, and Milo is like, oh, it took so long to build. And then he demolishes it. You know, they make allusions to sort of a joke, right? It's a funny moment. And, and they make allusions to, well, you know, we never hurt anybody before. We just mm-hmm. robbed graves. And they'll, mm-hmm. oh, maybe that did hurt somebody. There are these sort of, you know, glancing references to the ethics of, of archaeology at this time. Yeah, but, but, but it's not explored, right? It's not explored and it's not, uh, there are no consequences. Um, in fact, these, these uh, you know, grave robbers are, are, only, are only rewarded in the end. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's certainly um, something that we very much take very seriously now working with descendant communities and sort of if you excavate burials and tombs nowadays it is extremely uh at least it should be extremely respectful to any descendant communities that do claim that ancestry and even if there aren't um living communities i've worked on a few huge cemeteries uh in sicily and it's very taken very very seriously it's like these are you know, human beings and know maybe we're not hurting anybody. Um, but I'm so glad that we archaeologists have, you know, climbed out of that. Well, it didn't hurt anybody that we knew of mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of mentality because it's, yeah, it's not great. It's not a good look. I wanted to ask you, Eli, I mean, it, so so you've moved out of that, right, as an archaeological community, but culturally we have not moved out. Of Absolutely. The, the image of the archaeologist, at least not by 2001, Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you whether there has been what you would consider, you know, um, responsible representations of, of archaeology and pop culture that could counter what we see. I really don't know if I have a good pop cultural reference for respectful, uh, appropriate archaeological practices, because I think we don't maybe see... <laughs> It's going to be a very weird tangent, but Jurassic Park. You say more. <laughs> yeah, I'm. In, I am intrigued. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> are you Are you holding out? Is the archaeological community sitting on on a dinosaur park? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> no, I wish. Um, we're doing podcasts. <laughs> tell Nick. Tell Nick to get out of here. <laughs> Colin says, "Get out of here." <laughs> At least, okay. So I'm thinking of the very first Jurassic Park movie. Um, the very beginning you know the guy's like oh it's just a big lizard like what's the whole big deal and he's like you have to have respect for the creature that this was and sort of this was you know something that lived on this earth and fought and tried to survive and would you know very much hurt you (laughs) a small child and that sort of thought process to think about even that is you know not even another human being that is another creature that does not exist anymore today except in birds but that you still yeah, sort turkeys of enter looking at you looking at you turkeys <laughs> that you still sort of have this thought process of this is a living creature and it deserves our respect and yes we are looking at the remains of it but that doesn't mean that we can you know disregard its life and its existence Um, on this planet. And I do wish sometimes that people would sort of think about human burials, maybe a little bit more with a little bit more of the respect we might have for ancient dinosaurs, right? So if these were people who were, had loved ones who had thoughts and feelings who sort of existed in this world, and we absolutely need to respect and sort of see ourselves in that uh, very much. So I realized that was a very weird (laughs) <laughs> tangent 
<laughs> no, I love that. I love that as um as a starting point. And of course, ultimately the the past isn't past and it bites back, right? Absolutely. Um, yes. Yes. It's better than it was a better answer than I was going to give because I was my, my my pithy response was going to be I think in rural Tenenbaums, Angelica Houston's running like a, a I forget she's running some kind of archaeological dig in the city that I, I don't know what oh, it has great. to do. That's funny. <laughs> I haven't seen that in so long. Oh, I was just going to ask too about, um, so, you know, um, one of the, it's very painful for me in movies to see animals being hurt and antiquities destroyed. Like those are the things that really, really Mm -hmm. get to me. And we, 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 we have some of that here. And I actually was thinking about how that's a big part of the genre actually is it's not just that, um, it's not just that the explorer, the explorer is, is indifferent to destruction right but that's actually i think supposed to be part of the pleasure somehow um like and that is like nicely embodied in Vinny, right Mm -hmm. really wants to blow stuff up and also in moliere who wants to dig and i that was kind of of also a nice moment um of like just being really honest about what's driving this Mm -hmm. behavior but it's also a big part of the sort of the action hero genre um and i feel like i would be really remiss if we finished this podcast without referencing um the Atlantis in the uh, in the DC comic book world, yeah, uh, with with Aquaman, of course, and its head, um, and 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 there, of course, like superheroes are constantly going into museums and just smashing stuff, which drives me bananas. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, this is sort of a roundabout way of getting at this, um, whether whether you've seen the most recent Aquaman movie and and if Atlantis is like what that Atlantis is like compared to this one, because I haven't seen it. I, I have seen it and I truly feel like I blocked out a lot of it. I did not super enjoy it. <laughs> um, I thought it it made it very cartoony and garish in a in a way that I wasn't expecting. I feel like from the trailer, um, Aquaman was sort of like dark and gritty and just sort of this more maybe like realistic Aquaman. And then in the movie, the, all of the underwater scenes are like very bright and loud. And I I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, a difference between on land and under the water, but it struck me as sort of cartoonish in a bad way. And I didn't, I don't know, it didn't jive with me. I didn't like it. Yeah, I, I, I saw it. It has, it does a lot of weird world building where, we, where it's like a, it's, it's the movie I would just say like generally is bonkers. Um, but like there's like, there's this whole like, like game of Thrones esque element where like the evil guy is trying, there's like different kingdoms of Atlanteans and some of them are just like people. And some of them are like fish people. And like, there's a whole, <laughs> the brine, sorry, I'm thinking of another podcast where they get, they, they, they go off and one of the characters is called the brine King. And he's just like this giant crab man. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, they, it's, the, the like the the question is it's actually it's kind of similar i think it's almost like a crappier black panther because the kind of central issue is the atlanteans like the main evil guy wants to like become the king of atlantis so he can wage war on the surface world and who are because they're like polluting the world and and they're bad and destructive so he just wants to take them all out and that's kind of that's like it, it's it's just kind of weird um, it doesn't have that. It, it it it's completely sort of removed. It it's more like they're kind of more like 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 Wakanda, where they're like super advanced and isolationist by choice. But I was also reminded there is I watched a little bit. There's a there's a DC 
TV show called Young Justice that's like the Teen Titans. And one of the uh, characters is, is Aqualad. But when they go to Atlantis, this is, I have nothing really good to say about it, except when they go to Atlantis, they actually speak ancient Greek in Atlantis. And that's like, cool. not just ancient Greek. Like I was, I was watching, I was like, holy crap. And they say like, cause he, he calls his, Aqualad is like talking to Aquaman and he's saying, he calls him Wanox, which is like the Homeric word for, yeah. for king. And I was like, whoa, I was like, that's kind of cool. But they actually speak Greek. And I think this movie deliberately wanted the landing culture to like not be Greek. Because again, I think they were going for that kind of, like we were just saying, like it's very heavily influenced by like Native American and especially among other sort of non-white cultures. But that was just like, there's just like a weird little plug in Young Justice where they actually just speak oh, that's Greek great. for like a little bit. Um, yeah. I have been watching with my husband, um, Batman, The Brave and the Bold, which I believe is is more or less at the same time as Teen, Teen Titans. I feel like they're, the Aqualad shows up and, mm-hmm. but Aquaman is, is one of the best characters in that show. And he's, he's just, um, he's, he's very kind of original Thor in the, mm-hmm. in the, the Thor movies, like just, full of himself and kind of over the top and very cheerful and, and extremely <laughs> blonde. So if you're, if you're looking for an Aquaman palette cleanser, I recommend. Awesome. I could, I, this, we're going to, our, our podcast is going to take a right turn, but I'm all for it. But like, cause Aquaman just as a character is like fascinating and weird. Cause he like, for much of his early creation, he was just kind of a joke. And like, even in like DC, I think it's like super friends or whatever. Everyone's like, it just kind of like Aquaman is like, he talks to fish and it's silly. And so he's been like the butt of a joke for like decades. And then in the nineties, they really tried to like make him badass. Like they cut off his hand and he had like a hook for an arm and he was all like gritty. And that's, sh- and then like now, so they're, they're, they're trying to make Aquaman. Like they, they cast Jason Momoa, who's this like super cool, like, jacked like intense guy but yeah there's atlanta i mean atlantis is like even just like in like modern fiction it's it's sort of what am i saying i'm losing my train of thought it's like it's a well we keep returning to Mm -hmm. i think for better or worse (laughs) i am uh oh gosh now I'm, i'm losing my train of thought i was interested in how especially comparing to aquaman's atlantis so it's similarly to that when you have sort of atlantis is in a bubble right Mm-hmm. But here, the bubble. Well, we get two bubbles. There's the force field that comes back into into the place literal and, bubble, <laughs> right, to save them from the volcano. But then they're actually in this pocket of air under the earth, right? And I thought mm-hmm. that was so interesting because that they they really have no relationship to the ocean. Um, they're not mm-hmm. people. Although mm-hmm. although Peta does seem to be a good swimmer. Um, and then yeah. you have their their fish, their ships that are shaped like fish, sort of steampunk aircraft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it makes, but it's, that's quite different than like Aquaman can, you know, communicate with, um, yeah. with the creatures of the sea directly, you know, telepathically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was, that was kind of an interesting decision. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I, I never noticed that until be like, you're right. These, it, although there's like aquatic imagery all over, all over the place in, in Atlantis, they themselves have no particular, except there's, there's that sea monster that protects them, which is another, I'm like, I don't get the sea, like who, who made the sea monster and like, why is it there? <laughs> Right. Oh, and, and and then also, yeah, I, I thought it was weird that we didn't get a reference to, to that. Um, like, oh, life, life is still working. You know, it's still, yeah. it's still <laughs> out there. Well, I, I, th- I think it's never explained, but my sense is that Leonard Nimoy put it there to uh, keep Atlantis in its bubble, I think. But that's never actually, again, I think I'm like doing the movie's work for it because that's <laughs> never quite explained. Um, I also, I loved the, um, the, the colossal metal men uh, who guard 
uh, Sergeant Landon pull out the 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 force field, um, and that's another a, sort of a nice classical reference to like the figures like Talos, who's mm-hmm. made of you know made of fraud, created to, to guard um, to guard various places. Um, I thought that was a really gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. What was I gonna say? There was another of uh, the live. I think just uh, the other my main my other. My, <laughs> I mean, I I gotta like stop being so pedantic, but like my question is that there there's they have a book that I think is from the Vikings or someone that is a map to Atlantis. But like, how did that book come into it? How did the, like, how did the, how, who wrote, whoever wrote this medieval book, how did they get, how did they get their way to Atlantis? Okay. So here, here's the thing, Colin, is that the original intro to this movie was supposed to be all about the Vikings. Finding the book. And then they realized like, uh Oh, this is now a movie about finding the book. And that's not what we want to do. So, um, so yeah, so there's sort of an editing issue here, I think. Um, but I actually quite, I like that the book ends up, like there's a question of how it gets to sort of like who writes it, how, how does it get to, you know, how does it, does it, is it in Iceland? It, it, you know, it's not in Iceland initially, right? The Vikings have to bring it there. But I actually quite like that it ended up in Iceland because Iceland has a lot of medieval manuscripts that survive because of the, because of the conditions there, the climatic conditions. It's actually... A, a great place for preserving stuff. Just so, cool. <laughs> so I felt like that was sort of a nice little detail. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't answer any of our questions about this. No. <laughs> and a larger sort of more more just thematic thing we were talking about, we, but you mentioned like Atlantis being is in this bubble. And then the decision at the end of the movie is basically to leave them in the bubble, like, like bury the secret. Don't let the world know it's too. And like, do you, do you guys have any, I just want to know, do you have any thoughts about the idea of like letting them? Cause I was sort of thinking of like, like the, the, the example that kind of jumped to mind is like Japan spent hundreds of years as sort of an isolated country and then was forced to reopen by gunboat diplomacy. But the idea of like, should like this sort of, there's like sort of an ethical question of like leaving them in, in isolation and, and things like that. I just want to know if you had any thoughts about that. Eli, I think you should go first as a as an okay. apologist. Okay. I I sort of think if they're self-sufficient, they're obviously sustaining themselves. I would assume that even if you are thousands of years old, you have to eat. They have that whole sequence where they eat with all of the Atlanteans. Um, so they can obviously provide themselves with food. I don't, I guess... This is the weird question of, you know, their culture actually dying and like whether or not contact with the outside world would just accelerate that sort of eradication as it does with a lot of like indigenous languages that maybe two or three people still speak and they don't they have no one to pass it on to. Um, So I think in some cases, isolation can be helpful for communities that can self-sustain and that can Uh, sort of keep themselves going. And I'm thinking of tribes in the Amazon that have no outside human contact and sort of we don't have the same immunities to a lot of viruses, things that are going around, um, and that contact with them would be very harmful um, and that they are self-sustaining and that that is sort of a, a part of their protection against, you know, the outside world is being isolated. So I think if that is their choice, their culture's choice, then that should be respected. I like um, so so. I I, I think that's a that's a really good way of looking at it. I like the idea though of the Atlanteans becoming sort of becoming a world 
like a, a danger to the world or a world superpower. And this is something that is is very important in the in the Platonic account, and also actually alluded to at the at the beginning of like in the in the movie, right? That they, yeah. you know, Leonard Nimoy says that they, uh, you know, they they cared too much about war. They mm -hmm. wanted to go to war. There was some sort of investment in war, right? Um, and then, as you said, Colin, he, he, he tries to, to shut it down. But what if, you know, now that now that it's not shut down, like, what if they they decide they want to, you know, rejoin the rest of the world? And with this power source, like, could they potentially conquer it? So I, I, the, the movie is not set up that way. The movie is set up to make us think that they're going to be the victims of, the, of you know, European powers in World War One. But I think we could imagine a counter for sure. Um, and this is not a, I think this is a, a way in which this is a, this is a culture that is quite potentially different than say the Navi and, and Avatar who are, who are very explicitly sort of set up as like peace loving. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're hunters, right? But their, their mm -hmm. whole, their relationship with Awa, their relationship with their life, life force is about mm -hmm. harmony. And yeah, they're imbalanced with nature at all right, times. Like that's right. the whole point. Whereas the Atlanteans, their the, the relationship with their power sources is quite different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it might actually lead them in, into foreign imperialism. And I, I do wonder then that whether that somehow authorizes the the expedition against them, that this war that sort of warlike people who who screwed up their civilization are now like, you know, um, Sort of uh, the the prey of of, of another right. another warlike civilization. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. it does it does create uh, some some I think some complications to the the typical tropes around uh, around people people of, of lost places. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Lost, yeah. I, I think I only thought about it because it was really like just I keep coming back to Black Panther, but like that kind of throws it into sharp relief because that's almost the exact opposite where it's mm -hmm. like they can help us mm -hmm. um, right. and it's them sort of coming around to like there's a lot we can provide with this right. amazing. But you're, but Claire, you're, you're totally right. There's like is there that and there's also like just anthropological and like political science, like thinking about like this culture that was once a super, like a sort of military superpower, presumably has presumably gone without war for thousands mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. And then now regen. And also the, like you also said that the, the rest of the Europe is on the brink of world war one. And like, what would it mean to like, if this technologically advanced culture sort sort of came out of the woodwork with, you know, a superior power source and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think like, maybe like maybe my just hot take thesis on this film is that this this film introduces more interesting questions than it is prepared to answer itself. For sure. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's in a way a great boon to to interpreters like us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of meat for us to dig into. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, but it it does seem pretty unintentional and and beside the point for the for the creators. All right. Well, I think yeah, we've 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 to not to uh, hit it up too nail on the head, but we've excavated this uh, <laughs> quite a bit. Very good. I'll pay for that later. Uh, Clara, do you want to? Yeah, where can people find you on the internet, and what should they read about you? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Thaumatic. That's C H A U M A T I C. Um, and at my website, theburningboy.com, all one word, theburningboy.com. I also coordinate um, an organization called Chris Antiquity that advocates for neurodiverse people and people with disabilities in ancient broadly. Um, and the only other thing I have to say is thank you so much for a truly enjoyable conversation. 
and and a great respite. Yeah. No, thank you. You've, I think, I mean, you've elevated our, the normal level Absolutely. of our conversation to <laughs> hitherto unknown heights. Nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Uh, right, have a good evening. Take care. Okay. Bye.